0: The New Statesman.
1: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's time at the COVID inquiry. What did we learn and what did he obscure? Hello, I'm Anusha and Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor, and Freddie Hayward, our political correspondent. We're recording on the afternoon of Thursday, the 7th of December. So this morning and all of yesterday, Boris Johnson, the former prime minister, was in front of the COVID inquiry, giving evidence and answering questions about the decisions he made during the pandemic. Now, Rachel, you've done the hard yards. You <laughs> were there all day yesterday. Could you give us, first of all, before we discuss the substance of what he was saying, what was the atmosphere? feel like? Because this was probably the sort of blockbuster day of the COVID inquiry so far.
2: Yeah, I think it's the most high profile uh, day we've had so far, certainly the most high profile witness we've had. For a bit of context, the hearings are being held in uh, a, a building in Paddington. It's this kind of Georgian style building. And there's a hearing room that's got all the lawyers and the inquiry staff and Lady Hallett and it's kind of a bit like a courtroom setup if you've seen like clips of it and people can apply to to go sit there and they've got a few slots for journalists but most of the journalists are in a room upstairs where it's screened directly and you get a live transcription service as well and you have to book your slots for that too and both of these were completely booked out. Both days that Boris Johnson was giving evidence, there was a woman behind me who was a journalist who turned up and said like, oh, are there any journalists? Space is free. And they were nice to her. They basically laughed at her and were like, <laughs> absolutely not. Like we are packed. And the public gallery is obviously packed. And then obviously outside this building, also you've got demonstrators or protesters mm-hmm. or people who just want to come and sort of make their voices heard. And throughout the inquiry, there have always been... Some sort of members of the bereaved families, groups and also counter protesters who believe that going into lockdown was the wrong thing or vaccine sceptics. They're like a handful of them maybe, but there were crowds um, yesterday mm. and they had like a police presence and they were blocking roads and stuff. So, yeah, it was a really packed atmosphere. Boris Johnson arrived really early to the hearing. It
3: was 7am, wasn't it?
2: Or I thought, actually thought it was before that. Really? It was still dark because the hearing starts at 9 and they've got like a little witness room where you can go and prep and drink lots of Diet Coke. The staff tell me they provide Diet <laughs> Coke for witnesses. But yeah, it was dark when he arrived. It was certainly dark when he left. A very long day for everyone involved.
1: And rightly so. What did he look like? Because one of the things that he has done it during his career is turned up looking scruffy for things that actually where he should be showing respect to the people who are at the events. He did look scruffy. He had the ruffled hair and the
2: sort of dishevelled shirt and tie thing going on. But he also looked kind of diminished i guess like if you think about situations where boris johnson is very confident and at ease you've either got him standing doing oratory doing a speech mm. and lots of hand gestures and projecting his presence or you've seen clips of him in those sort of fireside chats when he was mayor of london mm. and just being quizzed about casual things kind of slouched back in an armchair like mm. well let me tell you about mm. the iliad and homer and this was just-
3: <laughs> american boris johnson <laughs>
2: I'm <laughs> terrible at accents. Why don't you give us? That was great. That was really, good. Was really yeah. good. Thanks, thanks, Bradley. And this was had to had to focus on a chair, very tightly controlled stance, and he was fidgeting constantly. He was swiveling on his chair, and he was looking up and then looking down, and then not making eye contact, and then going, "Well, no, actually, it was this." and It was clearly a really uncomfortable format for him. Again, rightly so, because he was being asked some quite uncomfortable questions. But we've been told for so long that Boris Johnson is this great communicator and that this, like he might not be across the detail, getting his point across and being able to be convincing and persuasive and connect with people. That's one of his core skills and you didn't really see any of that.
1: Okay, so did he handle the questioning? Because Hugo Keith, the KC who does most of the questioning at the inquiry, he's he's got a sort of a bit of a following now hasn't he he's very smooth and it's actually quite impressive watching him when you're in the when you're in the hearing room itself because he doesn't let anything pass you said in your piece which i think all our listeners should go and read because it's a very good piece <laughs> but you said that sort of johnson kind of it seemed like he assumed he could get the better of this guy with his mm. kind of oxford union debating tactics, but it just didn't work like that at all.
2: So it was really interesting because in the days before the hearing, there were lots of briefings that he had been preparing for it for weeks. He's got a star team of lawyers who are advising him and uh, he was really going to sort of get his point across. And we all knew the kind of questions he was going to be asked. Why didn't we go into lockdown earlier? Why wasn't Johnson at those COBRA meetings? What did he make of the dysfunctional atmosphere within Downing Street? Dominic Cummings saying that you should fire people using some very colourful language. Like We knew what the questioning lines were going to be. So it was really surprising watching him how unprepared he seemed for some of those lines of questioning how much waffling there was and how much sort of confusion and absolutely right Hugo Keith massively on top of everything pinning him down on what actually this document says this and you said in this statement that and there were a few moments where you have got a flash of Boris Johnson going oh maybe I can catch him out here there was a very actually a, a, a trivial point about whether he had been texted directly about Dominic Cummings' behavior. There was a, re- a message referred to. And Johnson suddenly went, well actually that message wasn't to me. It wasn't to me directly, was it? And you could see that he had thought that he'd, you know, got a, the a, better of it. A chink in the armor, like, mm. oh, if I could, if I can fight on this weird technicality. And Hugo Keith was like, look at this message on this date, which is being texted directly to your phone, in which it says this. And, and Boris Johnson kind of went, oh sorry so the sort of the attempts at doing the needling the jabs the back and forth the I'm going to make it a sort of point of information it's going to throw off my opponent it's not a debate it's not like a two way back and forth thing there's one person answering the questions mm. and one person
1: answering them yeah. after the break we'll be trying to figure out if we've actually learned anything new from the COVID inquiry so far If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store
0: or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
3: I'm interested in how helpful, how much we learn over mm. these past two days. because It strikes me that given the uh, interrogations that we've had in the past uh, three or four weeks or so, they're quite similar to the uh, scrutiny that we saw during the pandemic. I mean, because it consumed so much of our lives and it consumed... The media's attention we had data reports every single day we had the press conferences we had people pressing on it we also had whatsapp messages and text messages come out already from matt hancock's leak so it, it's i just keep watching these interrogations happen and not learning that much yeah do you share that
2: i think that's a really fair assessment i think it depends a lot on which witnesses we're talking yeah. about mm-hmm. i think that there have been revelations that have Come out. I know, like, it, it's possibly not the most important thing to focus on the language being used in Downing Street and Dominic Cummings trying to get colleagues fired, Helen McNamara, Matt Hancock, or whatever, but that stuff was. New and it was quite explosive, and it was discussed in Boris Johnson's evidence, what did it mean for government decision making, that this was the kind of culture in Downing Street. And he did say too many meetings were male-dominated. He did accept that. He did accept that. Yeah. Yeah. Although he was also, it was pointed out to him, that very rude message about Helen McNamara was sent to a WhatsApp group that he was part of and that he had read and he had done nothing at the time Mm -hmm. to push back against that or to make Helen McNamara feel feel safer. But in terms of what news lines did we get from Boris Johnson's evidence, very little. I would have said that certainly Wednesday's hearing was one of the least informative I've been to precisely because, as you say, Freddie, a lot of the stuff came out at the time and even more of it came out in other witness interrogations before Boris Johnson, the one thing that I hadn't heard before actually referred to long COVID mm. and I
1: was going to ask you about that yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> there was a bit where Boris Johnson was asked kind of how seriously he took long COVID and he did a sort of waffling well I was following the science well nobody really knew but I was listening to my scientists and etc 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 not going to do an impression because Freddie will tease me about it no, I think <laughs> it's great I think
3: it's great he's also half American
2: yeah exactly yeah well yeah, I'm channeling my inner <laughs> Boris Johnson there we go but he said like that he hadn't been dismissive about it at all mm. and mm. Hugo Keith presented him with this document, which was a briefing that he'd got in October 2020 about long COVID, what was known about it so far. And he just scrawled all over at bollocks. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, it's like, well, what do you make of that, Mr.
1: Johnson? He kind of went mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and looked at his shoes. So that was new. Something else that was new, I think it's the first time we've had him apologise, hasn't it, for some of the mistakes that the government made. Is that right?
2: Well, He's apologised, but not really. He started off with an apology, and this is kind of what I meant about him having been prepped but not really seeming prepped. Like He wanted to start with an apology. Matt Hancock started with an apology. A number of other officials have also started with that. He didn't get through his apology because there were some people in the Spectator Gallery who um, stood up and and held a a sign about the bereaved and were asked to to leave, but he, he made this apology. And then Hugo Keith said, okay, in hindsight, now with everything that we know now, you've just apologised, what mistakes are you apologising for? Can you point Mm -hmm. us in the direction of something that you feel that you got wrong? And he didn't have an answer for that. And it was all, well, we were all trying our best and the officials and the scientists and other governments. And so even at that moment, when he was being given the opportunity to take responsibility as Prime Minister, he couldn't quite bring himself to take it.
3: But it's interesting, isn't it? Because it speaks to what the purpose of the inquiry is. I mean, is it for Hugo Keith, this barrister to hold Boris Johnson to account for the decisions that he made? Or is it for the inquiry to draw constitutional or procedural lessons for a future pandemic? It doesn't strike me as is. Keith's job to say, look, you made these mistakes and therefore please apologise.
1: I think what they're doing is they're trying to find the balance between doing what the purpose of the inquiry is to do, to learn for future pandemics, while trying to keep it in the news. Apparently, this has been quite difficult for the inquiry. So that's why they might try and have more confrontational moments with higher profile politicians maybe focus on some of the bad language used in some of the messages and things in order to try and make sure that it sticks in the public and media consciousness, which you can argue whether that's cynical or not. But you've seen from previous inquiries like the Grenfell Inquiry and others that these things can really easily slip down the agenda. And I think that's a real vulnerability of the COVID inquiry, because I think there is a psychological Mm. instinct for humans to try and forget yeah, which kind want of to thing that we've it. been through apart from of course the very committed bereaved families who do turn up a lot to the hearings and it obviously affected everyone across the country but I remember writing at the time in the February lockdown about this phenomenon called pandemic amnesia, where people just don't want to remember these things. So if you look at the number of war memorials around the country, there's not a single memorial to Spanish flu victims, even though the Spanish flu killed more people than the First World War put together. Um, And there's not even an official AIDS memorial either. There's a few local monuments, but there's nothing for the AIDS victims that would be on a par with a war memorial. And we've really seen quite a similar, I think, kind of amnesia with COVID. People do want to move on. So I think that's another, while you're saying there's no news lines coming out of it. I also think there's this, there is this collective sort of impulse to move on and and try and forget the the worst of it.
3: Yeah, but I'm not sure why it's necessary for the COVID inquiry to be in the news to achieve its Job. I mean, mm-hmm. it can still produce the report at the end of it and say, "Look, these are mistakes that I've made, and the cabinet office should be structured in this way, etc." Without it being on the in the news every day. I mean, it's almost it has become a an exhibition of personal feuds for parliamentary sketch writers to attend and to write about, which is great in many ways. They should be able to do that, but is that the point? I mean, I don't understand why it's even to their advantage to do so. Maybe yet to keep it politically important but if you're keeping it politically important for the wrong reasons then it's not going to help their cause.
1: Well they're going to bring out these interim reports aren't they so I suppose if the inquiry hasn't been in the news at all then the pressure on the government to respond to their interim reports and take on the recommendations in those reports will be less I think.
2: I think your point about deliberately going for news lines to keep it in the news is really interesting because I was only there for the first day of Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson's evidence and that was enough but on the second day one of the lines of questioning was about Dominic Cummings' trip to Barnard Castle and what Boris Johnson thought of that. And it's very difficult to see how one rogue advisor breaking lockdown rules to drive up to Durham would teach you valuable lessons for how to deal with the next pandemic. I do think the wider Cummings point about the atmosphere, did officials feel that they were being bullied or that they couldn't sort of state their positions clearly because there was somebody there who was making them feel very uncomfortable and very unsafe? And like, is there transparency and is there a good working culture in Downing Street? That I think is important and is an important lesson going forward. But the Barnard Castle-Durham trip, like, that isn't important, and I think that line of questioning was purely there as, as Anish said, to
1: to give them some kind of newsline. Yeah, that's the thing and the public also, really care about. And that is the thing. Yeah. That's the thing the public really care about. They care about the hypocrisy. So Partygate will still come up when you go out reporting, maybe on the by-election trail or whatever. People will say that on the doorstep. People are still very angry about the Barnard Castle trip and Matt Hancock breaking the rules and having his affair during the time when the rules that he had made were in place. So I think it's the hypocrisy really does wind people up. I mean, you've seen the reaction from some reality TV contestants to Hancock when he's been on programmes and stuff that is still very fresh in people's minds. And I think that will, you know, have a marginal electoral impact still because it really, do- it came up in Tamworth in the by-election campaign when I was going around there. And that was quite a few years on from this. And that brings me on to one of my um, questions, which is how do you think this could have an impact on the election or on Rishi Sunak's sort of standing? Because he's meant to give evidence on, yeah, that on Monday.
3: Yeah, on Monday, yeah. I mean, I think it won't make a massive difference. There are other things going on. I mean, this week, we've had the Rwanda treaty, we've had the Rwanda bill. I don't think the inquiry is the most important thing in politics at the moment. I think you're right, Anoush, to say that people resent the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson and number 10 at the time for the hypocrisy. But Boris Johnson is no longer in power. And also, I think that's baked in. They already feel like that. It's not as if dredging over what happened and going through the private conversations of advisors is going to make them more angry than they already are.
2: I think it's interesting that so far the individual politicians haven't gone for each other. You had obviously Dominic Cummings going for everyone... But Matt Hancock was kind of offered the opportunity to blame it all on on Boris Johnson or to say that he was stitched up by colleagues. He didn't take it. He didn't say anything too negative about Eat Out to Help Out, which is obviously Rishi Sunak's big Mm. scheme. When he was Chancellor, Boris Johnson was asked about Eat Out to Help Out and said he didn't think that it was particularly detrimental, even though Chris Whitty has said otherwise. He was also asked about Matt Hancock's performance because he's been criticised a huge amount and there have been suggestions that Boris Johnson thought he was weak and ineffectual at a time, but kept Hancock in place. Mm. I think this is a direct quote from Valence as a sacrifice for mm. the inquiry. Or well, that, that was his speculation. Anyway, and Boris Johnson said, no, he thought that Hancock was doing a really good job. Both Michael Gove and Dominic Raab have been very careful in their criticism of colleagues. And you would have expected Boris Johnson to... You know, soon, go, yeah, he stabbed him in the back, right? Mm-hmm. But he didn't. So I think there's been the kind of understanding that if they start doing yeah, that, closing circular yeah. firing squad, it's all going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, Cummings is the bad guy and, and they're very happy to criticise him. Mm-hmm. But the, the ministers involved haven't really attacked
1: each other. But we have had a few sort of revelations about how they saw Sunak's attitude to the pandemic. Like, I think he was called Dr. Death in one memo. And I think at the time, the public wasn't aware that Rishi Sunak was very much one of the drivers in Cabinet for opening the country up quickly. Obviously, he would be. He was the Chancellor. So the economy was his main priority. But I don't think he had that reputation. People quite liked him, didn't they, at the time? They really liked him. He was one of the most popular politicians in the country because he was (laughs) handing out money. So I think I agree with you, Freddie, that it's not going to be the top of people's focus But I do think if more revelations come out about how he wasn't as concerned about the loss of life as he was about the economy, people might be quite surprised and think, oh, that was the guy who kept us. I thought that was the guy who kept us safe or out of economic crisis um, during that time.
3: I do think that is very conscious of trying to create both of these impressions Mm. during the pandemic, that he cares a lot about people's health. And also since then, now he's recognised that there's a large... Uh, section on the Tory right who are extremely yeah. sceptical of lockdowns. He's realised that perhaps I need to play up how uh, critical I was of locking down the country during COVID. I think you you might see that on Monday as well. And you see him trying to unify his party behind the fact that he was actually trying to resist some of Boris Johnson's overzealous uh, lockdowns during the pandemic.
2: Wow. I, th- I think you might also see him use the lines of questioning at the inquiry to make a wider point about his handling of The country and the economy at the Mm moment—you know—we're in the position that we are now because of X billion that we spent on X, Y, Z, and and, I'm going to do an impression now, Freddie. And
1: it was right for us to do that. (laughs) That was good. (laughs) That is the way you had the kids' TV presenter. um,
2: I'm talking about a very serious topic now for all of us. But one of the things that he hasn't been very effective of doing given the economic challenges the country has faced since you've become prime minister, is drawing that line between all of this spending during the pandemic has to be paid for in some way. That's why yes, taxes keep saying are, this, yeah. are so high. But that message hasn't really... Stuck. So yeah. I guess if Sinak has given the opportunity to say, "Here is all the money I spent on these things and it was right to do so, but I also wanted to stop the spending from getting out of control because we can see now what the consequences of that are, that could be an opportunity to make quite a compelling argument. The question is, can you do it without seeming rattled and touchy and under pressure and one of the things that we've seen of him in in recent months particularly recent days Mm. is that when he does feel under attack he gets very kind of moody teenager and
3: it's not a great look. But this is the key point isn't it? Rishi Sunak's in office Boris Johnson is not so when Rishi Sunak goes and stands up there he has to play to his current political situation Boris Johnson doesn't have to do so he's got two audiences and that's why I think Rishi Sunak's appearance might be more interesting I still don't think it'll be that interesting but he has got lots of considerations and particularly given the dire political situation he finds himself in and the disunity in his party, the speculation now that there's more talk about leadership challenges, as there always have been for the past two years, I must say, in the Tory party. He has to use every single opportunity he has now to try and speak to his party and to the public as well.
1: Yeah. So, Rachel, will you be back in the committee room on Monday? I think we should send Freddie. I think he didn't <laughs> have to turn. All right. Well, we'll bring you coverage from there either way. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.